Well, good morning and welcome. If I haven't got to meet you yet, my name is Travis Bowles. I am a church planning resident here at Redeemer, and we are prayerfully working through planning a church in Magnolia. Um, so before we begin, I'd like to say a prayer for us. Lord, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for the encouragement that they have been to our core team as we kind of do something scary, Lord, where we step out in faith. And uh, Lord, thank you so much for um, their encouragement, Lord, to, to me, my family, and to the core team. Lord, thank you for the visitors that you've brought in here today, Lord. Lord, help us just this morning just to understand a little bit more just how patient you are, how merciful you are, how gracious you are. Lord, help us to love you and follow you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Now, I've always loved how the King James Version of the Bible renders this. It says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. So in other words, Paul really does believe that he is the chief of sinners. Look at what he says by I am. It's a, it's a personal, it's an, it's an active, it's a present personal pronoun. He really does believe that he is the chief of sinners. And so why did Paul believe that he was the chief of sinners? And why does that matter to us? Now, to do this this morning, to really kind of understand that, I don't think we have to do super deep expositional work on the passage. I think it's a pretty straightforward passage, but what we need to do is do some biographical work. We need to look at Paul's life, his story, and his testimony, and then overlay that passage on top of his testimony to, to really feel the full weight of what he's saying here. And I think, as you'll see, I believe this is the angle that Paul really wants us to view this passage from. But before we get started, I really need to clear a possible objection, right, to doing biographical work on someone. Now, it's, it's popular right now to read Christian biographies, and I completely agree with it. I think there's a reason why it's popular. I'm personally reading um, through Adoniram Judson's biography. He's the first American missionary sent off, and he goes to Burma in the 1800s, and he shares the gospel with the people in Burma. Now, it's been very encouraging in my current season of my life right now, but why do biographies, right? Shouldn't we be all about Jesus? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, he says this, he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. See, biographies are helpful in as much as they point us back to Jesus, in as much as they point us back to the work he's done on the cross, in as much as they help us in our discipleship of him and following him. So following that example this morning, we'll look at Paul's conversion, his testimony. And I think we're going to see three things in this passage. Paul's conversion, the reason for that conversion, and why it matters to us. Paul's conversion, the reason for that ver uh, conversion, and why it matters to us in our modern setting. So let's begin with verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. As Paul says, Jesus appointed him to his service. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, we, we really see Paul's conversion, how Jesus appointed him to become an apostle. In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16, these words are used for his commissioning. He says, 
It says, go for he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, as we know from biblical history, Paul the Apostle really was the chief missionary and the chief church planner of the early church. We think that he planted churches in Galatia and Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, and even in Ephesus. He brought the gospel to hostile places and to hostile major cities. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see that Paul, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was left for dead, he was shipwrecked, he was bit by a snake, he was bit by another type of snake uh, called a false brother. He, went, he was lonely, he went without food. And all he did all of this for the sake of doing kingdom work, all for the sake of bringing the gospel to people who have never heard of Jesus. And the Lord called him and appointed him to this service and to this life. But this is sort of the completed picture, if you will, of a life well spent, a, a life well lived for Jesus. But before that, there was a different Paul. We sort of have a a warm and fuzzy kind of sentimental view of Paul, right? We've come to love Paul, but Paul before Jesus was anything but warm and fuzzy. Look at how Paul describes his life pre-conversion, pre-Jesus. In verse 13, Paul says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul lays out three charges against himself pre-Jesus. He says that he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. And this is why Paul believes that he is the chief of sinners. Now, the backstory here is important. We happen to know a lot about Paul's former life before he met Jesus. And when we can bring it to bear on these verses, it really brings out the weight We find his bio, if you will, his biography at the end of Acts. We find it in Philippians, Galatians, and even in Romans. So in the history of the early church, or in the book of Acts, we first encounter Paul, and he is this young man named Saul. Now, as was popular in their culture, in their context, he had two names. Saul was his Jewish or Hebrew name, and Paul was his Greek name. But the first time we encounter Paul in church history, Paul is at the scene of a brutal murder. And he wasn't there as a bystander. Acts 8 says that he was there approving of the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. This is not exactly how you'd expect to encounter Paul. This is not the normal origin story for someone who had become the chief missionary and chief church planner of the early church. But how did he get there? How did he become this blasphemer, this persecutor, and this insolent opponent? As a kid, Paul was born into a Jewish family. He could trace his Jewish lineage all the way back to Abraham. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. If you remember from your Old Testament history, Israel had three kings, and the first king they had was King Saul, who was a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin. It's likely that Paul got his name from King Saul. So Paul could trace his Jewish lineage through a really noble line. As a Jewish boy in the first century, it was common for boys to be trained by their father in the Torah or the Old Testament. They would also go to the synagogue and they would learn the Old Testament scriptures there at the synagogue. But around the ages of 12 to 13, they would then enter the workforce. They would learn normally the skill that their father had or the craft their father had and enter the workforce. 
This is probably where Paul probably became a tent maker, picked up those skills. But Paul went into some very strict religious training. He sort of entered a pipeline that would eventually lead him out on the other side as becoming a Pharisee. We know that he trained under Gamaliel, who back then was very respected and still today by modern Jewish scholars is still very well respected. But Paul became a Pharisee, which means that he was part of a, a very, very a, a Jewish political party that had a lot of clout during this time, that had a lot of power. They militantly followed the Old Testament. They forced the Old Testament laws onto the Jewish people at the time as well. We don't think about this very often, but Paul lived at the same time that Jesus lived. Their lives were congruent. That means that Paul heard about Jesus' death and his resurrection, and Paul thought it was all a lie. Paul violently tried to stamp out the church. He passionately worked against Jesus in the church. This is where Paul's story intersects Stephen's. So we first encounter Paul at that brutal murder of Stephen. Stephen was a leader in the early church. He was elected by that early church there in Jerusalem, and he fulfilled the role of service, much like one of our deacons would fulfill here in our church. The Jewish leaders arrested Stephen, and they brought him in front of a council. He then preached this powerful expositional sermon that was spirit-filled, and they got angry, and the mob formed, and they dragged him out of the city, and then they threw stones at him, until he expired. Acts 8 tells us that the mob laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and that Saul approved of his execution. This is hardly the introduction for a pivotal hero of the faith. Saul then was involved in a great persecution that arose against the church in Jerusalem. We see Paul ravaging the church. He was entering house to house, dragging off Christians off to prison. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, when, when Paul says that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, he really was. This is a factual and historical admission. He's confessing his sins prior to Jesus. Paul is being transparent. He's being real. He holds back no punches. This is a type of person that no one expects to be converted. Paul's opposition to Jesus And the church just seemed to run too deep in how he was raised, his context, his culture, who he was as a person. He truly was the villain of the story. But God wants us to see that the most unlikely and the most undeserving people can be radically converted by the grace of God. Paul was not raised in the right home. He didn't go to the right school. He wasn't raised in the church. He didn't have Christian parents. He committed horrible sins against the Lord, and yet the chief of sinners was radically saved. Paul says in verse 13 that he received mercy, and that carries us into verse 14, where Paul says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, we find Paul, he's still an unbeliever. He's breathing threats and and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He has letters in hand, and he's on his way to Damascus to imprison some more Christians, to haul them off back to Jerusalem. There on the road to Damascus, in Acts chapter 9, it says that suddenly there was a light from heaven that shone around him. Paul was stopped in his tracks. He fell to the ground, and his world and his life were forever radically changed. 
He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus is sudden. Paul's conversion is unexpected. He's the villain. His extremely zealous Jewish beliefs just seem to run too deep in who he was and his raising and his, his culture. His crimes are too horrible. In Acts 9, and in Paul's own testimony, it's obvious that Paul did not see his conversion coming. There was no spiritual heartbeat in this guy. There was no receptivity to the gospel. There was no sensitivity to the gospel message. Yet God poured his grace on Paul. And the grace of our Lord overflowed on Paul. But why? Why would, why would God save a Paul, save a terrorist, save a murderer, save a persecutor, save the chief of sinners? And Paul tells us why in verses 15 through 16. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Read that carefully. Jesus displayed perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This means that Paul's conversion, his testimony, have personal significance for you and for me. Paul is talking directly to you and to me. My hope is that the full weight of this finds you this morning. Think about it. By God's good plan, his good and sovereign plan, God patiently endured Paul's blasphemy, his persecution, his insolent disobedience and hostility. God saved Paul to give you hope. He saved Paul so that we might be stirred by God's grace and his mercy. He saved Paul to make us realize that he can really save wretches like us. No one is too hard, no one is too far gone for the overwhelming grace and mercy of Jesus. So if you're joining us here today, and you're considering Jesus for the first time, God saved Paul, the chief of sinners, so that way you would feel the weight of God's patience, his grace, his mercy. If he can save Paul and radically transform Paul's life, then he can save you and make you new in him and make you new for him. Paul said in verse 15 that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is one of the most clear, concise, and comprehensive statements about Jesus' mission and his work on the cross. See, we all, like Paul, we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says that he was an insolent opponent of the Lord's. And the Bible describes us, pre-Jesus, pre-conversion ourselves, as enemies of God, as hostile to God. And while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile to God, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. See, our sins deserve eternal punishment. But God, being rich in patience, rich in love and mercy, sent Jesus to die on the cross. And if you do what it says in verse 16, if you place your faith and trust in Jesus and you believe in him, then you will be saved and have eternal life with him. If God can save a Paul, he can save you. Church, Paul's testimony here has a lot of different applications for us. 
but I want to leave you with these three application points. Hope in evangelism, the power of testimony, and incarnational apologetics. The first point of application here is that Paul's conversion from being the chief of sinners to the chief missionary and church planner of the early church, it should give us hope. Paul went from trying to stamp out the church to building up the church through missions and church planning and writing letters like this to Timothy. That should give us hope in sharing the gospel with our friends, our family, and our co-workers. I've personally, I've shared the gospel with certain, uh, certain people, and there seems to be no receptivity or sensitivity to the gospel message. There seems to be no spiritual heartbeat. Um, I've shared the gospel with some people that, that are even really hostile to the gospel message. But Paul's testimony here should give us hope. It should make us, it should, it should cause us to just really commit to earnestly praying for them that like Paul, the Lord would just grab a hold of them and overwhelm them with the grace and mercy that he has. Also, if you notice, basically, essentially, in 1 Timothy chapter 12, verse 17, we have Paul's testimony, his, his story about how he met Christ and how he was changed after he met Christ. It's basically a, an example of how powerful our testimonies can be. Paul's testimony was powerful, and it should remind us that it's helpful to use our testimonies in sharing the gospel. Now, I just came out of the workforce not too long ago, and I realized how difficult it is to share the gospel in today's environment, right, or, or kind of our cultural setting that we're in. But I still believe that our testimonies are a very effective way to share the gospel in today's climate. Paul's testimony here, his story here, can even be sort of used as a, a template. This is who I was before I met Jesus. This is when I realized that I had a need for Jesus, and this is how Jesus has been transforming my life into his image. We basically just incorporate the gospel elements into our testimony, and I think it's a very powerful way to share the gospel in our setting. Now, I know some of you are probably like me or going, hey, I don't have a wild testimony. I don't have a wild conversion to story like Paul does, right? Some of us are more, a little bit more like the Timothys here, where T Timothy was, was raised in a broken family, right? We don't believe that his father was there, but he still had a godly mother and grandmother who were speaking the gospel into him and discipling him before Paul ever came along. But Timothy is still a story about how God saved a sinner. And it's still a story about how God is, is faithful and patient and graceful. It's Jesus just pouring it through his mother and his grandmother. Your story is still a very, way, a very good way to share the gospel, even if it's not wild and crazy. Also, think about the context here. Paul is telling Timothy this, this young minister, and Timothy already knows Paul's testimony, right? He was discipled by Paul. So notice how Paul's testimony functions in this letter. If you just look a little bit above this, Paul's basically telling him to remain in Ephesus. Buckle up, dig deep, because there's lots of bad theology. They're, they've drifted off into myths and genealogies. And he's basically saying, stay in the breach, continue to fight the good fight. And he's using his testimony to encourage him. Now, I've personally, I find it very encouraging when other brothers and sisters tell me their testimony. I think your testimony is useful not only with evangelism, but it's also useful in encouraging the body. It's a reminder of, of the gospel and that Jesus is real and active and he's working in other people's lives. I recently was in Magnolia and I was eating spring rolls with a bro uh, brother and he was telling me his testimony about how he kind of heard the gospel and he was driving on his motorcycle, he was riding his motorcycle from town to town and somewhere in the middle he became a believer. 
And when he told me that, it just it fired me up. It, it gave me encouragement to continue to share the gospel faithfully with others. Your testimony is good, and it's encouraging to share with one another. So I, I encourage you to, to practice it. Practice it this week, maybe in your small group, maybe with a friend. The third point of application here we can draw is called incarnational apologetics. And let me explain. I know it's kind of a big, big term there. Paul uses his testimony at least three times in the book of Acts at the very end. He uses it as part of his legal defense. He uses his testimony in Philippians and also in Galatians as part of a theological argument. That's because Paul's testimony really speaks to the truth and the reality of the gospel. We call this incarnational apologetics. Normally, apologetics is where we give a logical argument uh, in favor of Christianity. We're responding to something and we're giving a logical argument. Normally, it's informational. But the reality is, people can argue against Christianity for whatever reason they're going to come up with. But what's difficult to argue against is a transformed life, a life made new in Christ. You can't explain Paul's life any other way. He was dead set on persecuting Christians. He was there at the scene of the murder of Stephen. There's no amount of behavioral modification that explains away Paul's conversion, right? God supernaturally grabbed the hold of Paul and supernaturally changed his life and transformed his life in Christ. Church history even tells us that Paul was probably beheaded in Rome. So the man who persecuted and murdered Christians was also persecuted and was a martyr for the faith. Paul's conversion speaks to the truth and the reality of the gospel. You consistently living out your life confirms the gospel for others to see. So persevere, persevere in Jesus. If you look at how Paul ends this in verse 17, after marveling and explaining the patience, the grace, and the mercy that the Lord has shown the chief of sinners, Paul responds. He erupts. He erupts in praise and worship and doxology. So I think it's a fitting way for us to end this morning. Paul says in verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your patience that you've shown us. Thank you for your mercy, your grace, your love that you have shown us while we were still sinners, while we were opponents of you, Lord. Lord, I pray for any visitor here, Lord, I pray that they would have a, a Damascus Road experience, Lord, that you would just grab a hold of them and you were, just overwhelm them with your grace and the truth of the gospel. Lord, help us to persevere in our Christian lives so our lives will be a, a testimony to the truth of the gospel. Lord, give us boldness to share the gospel with our coworkers, our friends, and our families. Lord, help us just to give us, just give us a heart for the lost. So Lord, just please help us to love you and follow you. Lord, and we ask all these things through your son's name. Amen.